welcome to the broadcast coming to you today from a, uh, a soggy Southern Command Center here behind the Orange Curtain. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You're listening to No Nonsense Catholic. And we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about devotion to the Passion during Lent, which uh, some people consider to be uh, rather medieval, which in fact it is. So today we're going to explore praying with a medieval mentality by actually looking at a a genuine work of medieval piety. Also, we'll look later at the Extraordinary Form readings for the third Sunday of Lent, and of course, more. But to begin with, on way back in 2012, March the 8th of 2012, the Jesuit magazine America published an article by one of their priests named Father Peter Schilliner, Schindler, I should say, called The Tridentine Mass, Why I Couldn't Go Back. So it's, it's a typical liberal indictment of the traditional Latin mass and traditional Latin Catholics, for that matter. And almost a decade later, in April of 2021, Dr. Peter Kuznevsky published an article called Why I Couldn't Go Back to the Novus Ordo as a response. Now, the question is, why respond to some lame liberal Catholic article published nearly 10 years before? Now, Dr. Kuznevsky said that he'd noticed that for the better part of the last decade, America Magazine has been paying money to promote this article in online searches. When people search the traditional Latin mass, they're going to get this article about why, how terrible it is. Uh, and, you know, he said at the time that he was writing this article as an antithesis, and he said uh, they're evidently worried about the direction the youth are going in because they're trying so hard to influence public opinion against the traditional mass. And I believe he was proven right because it was only three months later that Pope Francis promulgated Traditionis Custodes. Anyway, uh, because of his article, I went back uh, at, at the time, whatever, in 2021, and read Father Schillner's article, which simply raised the same tired old straw men that have been knocked down so many times already. Um, and it was evident to me that I was not hearing the voice of a good shepherd, but a hireling who hath no care for the sheep. Now, by the way, if you're new to No Nonsense Catholic and you're at all interested in why I assisted the traditional Latin Mass, I wrote a book about it. Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, and you can get it from Ignatius Press or your local bookstore. So rather than refuting some old article point by point, or even presenting all the good reasons for attending the traditional mass like Dr. K did, I thought I would uh, you know, slay a couple of the dragons of error that continue to plague the church regarding Vatican II and the two forms of the Roman Rite, especially in the aftermath of Traditionis Custodes and then the, the um, recent rescript um, authorizing, you know, there you know, penalties for not, you know, uh, referring these matters to the Holy See. So a particular point that I want to make is that it's simply incorrect to refer to the Novus Ordo as the Mass of Vatican II, as Father Hireling S.J. did in his piece back in 2012. The Novus Ordo Mise was conceived in the years after Vatican II. It was promulgated in 1970. If anything, it's the Missal of Paul VI, not the Mass of Vatican II. In fact, I would challenge you to actually read Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Vatican II document on liturgy, because I assure you that you can examine it with a magnifying glass and read it until your eyes bleed, and you will not find any mandate for a new order of the Mass. Nor will you find a mandate for the priest to face the people, or communion in the hand, or removing the tabernacle from the altar, or abandoning Latin, which Sacrosanctum Concilium says must be retained or for abandoning sacred music, especially Gregorian chant, which the document says should be given pride of place, nor for altar girls or extraordinary ministers, or et cetera, or et cetera, or et cetera. All of this happened after Vatican II, often in the name of Vatican II, or the spirit of Vatican II, 
But the fact remains, it's simply not in the council documents. Now, on the other hand, in the same way that it's wrong to call the Novus Ordo the Mass of Vatican II, it's also wrong to refer to the 1962 Missal of John XXIII as the Tridentine Mass. It is not identical to the Mass of the Council of Trent, or more properly, the Mass of St. Pius V. It is, rather, the revised and streamlined edition of that Mass promulgated by John XXIII. In fact, if anything, it's the 1962 Missal that we should probably call, or properly call, the, the, the traditional Latin Mass uh, that should be called the Vatican, the Mass of Vatican II. I, I garbled that. Let me say that again. If anything, it's the 1962 Missal that we should call the Mass of Vatican II. And why? You know, the 1962 is what we refer to today as the traditional Latin Mass. See, John Twenty-Third, against all expectations and in what I believe has proven to be an, a, a real error in prudential judgment, called the Second Vatican Council in 1959. And his stated purpose was not you know, as other councils, to answer some urgent moral or theological controversy or to raise some doctrine to the level of a dogma. Rather, it was to hold a pastoral council, his words, in an attempt to present the age-old teaching of the church in a way that's more suited to quote-unquote modern man. Now, I suspect that by January of 1962, Pope John was already aware of the machinations of the more liberal faction of bishops to use that council to modernize the church, by which I mean to remake it in their own image. And I believe this because he took two actions that I do not think can be explained otherwise. Vatican II opened in October of 1962, but before that happened, in February of 1962, Pope John XXIII issued an apostolic constitution called Veterum Sapientia on the promotion of the study of Latin. And in it, he says, among other things, quote, the church's language must not only uh, must be not only universal, but also immutable, that is, unchanging. Modern languages are liable to change, and no single one of them is superior to the others in authority. He pointed out the employment of Latin has recently been contested in many quarters, and many are asking what the mind of the apostolic see is in this matter. We have, therefore, decided to issue the timely directives contained in this document, so as to ensure that the ancient and uninterrupted use of Latin be maintained and, where necessary, restored. So not only keep using Latin, but if you stopped using Latin, start using it again. And we know how well this was obeyed. The other thing that John XXIII did in anticipation of the Council was to promulgate his new revision of the Roman Missal. You know, for a hundred years, the, the so-called liturgical movement had been clamoring for certain changes in the liturgy. Some were a matter of updating, others allegedly returning to an ancient practice, which illustrates the two main theological currents or factions at Vatican II. Aggiornamento, Italian for updating, and Ressourcement, which is French for a return to the sources. And some of the Council Fathers and their Pariti, or theological experts, were more radical than others. Now, years before all this, in, in 1955, under Pope Pius XII, Monsignor Annabali Bugnini, who would become the, the main architect of the Novus Ordo, made perhaps the most significant changes in the Roman Missal since 1570 with his reform of Holy Week, which included permission for doing the lections, that is, the readings, in the vernacular. Now, fast forward to 1962, and Pope uh, St. John XXIII issues a whole new edition of the Missal, which added the name of St. Joseph to the Roman canon, unheard of before that time, and suppressed the second confidior, among other things, as well as removing the term perfidious from the Good Friday intercessions for the Jews. Now, this new edition, this revised missal, this new Roman missal 
of John the 23rd was the mass that was celebrated by all the cardinals, bishops, and priests at Vatican II. And I believe it, it, it should be clear that John the 23rd would not have issued a new edition of the Roman Missal if he was expecting the council to mandate a new order of the mass, you know, which in fact it didn't. Well, after the council closed in 1965, in accordance with Sacrosanctum Concilium, new mass books were issued for the 1962 Missal with the readings, the proper prayers, and the people's responses in the vernacular. The addition, or restoration if you prefer, of the prayers of the faithful and the suppression of the last gospel. But even with the addition of the vernacular and the dialogue between the priests and the congregation, which had been going on since the days of Pius XII in Latin, this revised Mass of Vatican II incorporated virtually all the suggestions of Sacrosanctum Concilium. Uh, and all is said, Pope Paul VI, for reasons of his own, went ahead with the imposition of a whole new order of the Mass, cobbled together by a, a committee of bureaucrats, something entirely unknown in the bimillennial history of the Church. Now, the 1965 Missal uh, became known as the Interim Missal, because the Novus Ordo was published only four years later in 1969, and then imposed universally on the Church in Advent of 1970. So what happened next is, is not a matter of conjecture, but simple history. After the imposition of the Novus Ordo Mise, the vast majority of Catholics from around the world, from 75% of Catholics in some countries to over 90% in others, simply abandoned the practice of the Catholic faith altogether. In a single generation, the majority of Catholics in the West, millions upon millions of Catholics, just left. Some for other Christian communities, some few for other religions, and, and many millions simply abandoning, abandoning religious practice altogether. You see, that's what happens when the Church tells you that what it taught for millennia to be the holiest and most beautiful thing this side of heaven is suddenly the most forbidden. The great project of reform initiated, if not mandated, by the Second Vatican Council has been, by every measurable standard, an abject failure. Like most liberal projects, the, the post-conciliar Church accomplished none of its stated goals, and yet it imagines that the solution is doubling down on what created the problem in the first place, hence the synod on synodality. Well, not surprisingly, the only sector of the Church today that's growing instead of shrinking is traditional Catholicism. And not only traditional liturgy, but traditional theology, traditional catechesis, traditional music and architecture, traditional morality, even in, uh, including among some Catholics who do not exclusively attend the traditional Mass. When my book came out back in 2017, I did a bunch of radio interviews about the traditional Latin Mass and print interviews as well. And um, I was invited to go on Catholic Answers, and Cy Kellett asked me, do you think the traditional movement will continue to grow? And this is, this is 10 years after, you know, Samorum Pontificum. And I said that I believed that traditional Catholicism will eventually become ascendant. And it, it's more than doubled since just since COVID. And why? For the simple reason that liberal Catholicism does not beget liberal Catholics, it begets non-Catholics. And he said, you know what? You put your finger right on the crisis of the church. And so I maintain that our Catholic tradition is not just the church's past, but our only hope for the future. And that's no nonsense. Hey, when we come back, praying with a medieval mentality and more on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome 
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. One of my favorite books for meditation over the last dozen years or so has been A Book of the Love of Jesus. It's a collection of prayers from the first half of the 1300s by a medieval English hermit named Richard Roll, also known as Richard of Hampole. And they were, uh, they were compiled and edited by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson, uh, circa 1904. Now, I gave my copy away a couple of years ago to somebody I thought would benefit from it, only to discover uh, at that point that it was out of print. And then I found a, a downloadable PDF of it online. And, uh, and when I told my RCIA class about it a couple of years ago, one of my students, a nice family, Brandon, Brenda, and their daughter, Lotus, had the digital scan printed and bound as a hardcover book, which they presented to me as a gift, which was incredibly thoughtful. And I'm still just so grateful. And if you're listening, thank you again. It was awesome. Anyway, the thing about this book is that the prayers were composed in English and were very popular in their own day, which is to say in the Middle Ages. So it gives us some significant insights into the prayers of those times. Um, And one especially attractive point for me is that while some of the book is written in prose form, Many of the prayers and devotions are written in rhyming verse. That is to say, many of his prayers are also poems. I think it's unfortunate that this practice has so fallen out of favor in the post-conciliar church. I mean, once upon a time, in the days before printing, books were copied by hand. And consequently, they were rare and expensive. So people had to commit things to memory. Like the old question-answer catechism, things were learned by heart. Even entire university educations were memorized. So mnemonic devices, that is, helps for memorization, were were important, you know, rather important, with, with rhyme and meter being two of the oldest and most effective. So, for example, when I became a Catholic, I learned a bunch of prayers by heart. You know, the Creed, the Our Father, the Hail Mary, uh, the Glory Be, the Hail Holy Queen, the Angelus, the Memorare, the Act of Contrition, uh, Prayer to St. Michael, so on and so on. And like most Catholics, I know all these prayers and more by heart, some of them even in Latin. But there was one prayer that I could never seem to commit to memory. I just couldn't get my, my uh, brain around it, and that's the Anima Christi. Soul of Christ, sanctify me. Body of Christ, save me, etc. It just wouldn't stick. <clears throat> and that is until I ran across Cardinal Newman's poetic translation. Soul of Christ, be my sanctification. Body of Christ, be my salvation. Blood of Christ, fill all my veins. Water of Christ's side, wash out my stains. Passion of Christ, my comfort be. O good Jesus, listen to me. In thy wounds I fain would hide, ne'er to be parted from thy side. Guard me should the foe assail me, call me when my life shall fail me, and bid me come to thee above with all thy saints to sing thy love, world without end. Amen. Accurate, beautiful, and most importantly, easily memorized. It's even been put to music, adding uh, meter and melody to the rhyme, which makes memorization even easier. You know, they say that most uh, modern people can sing along with like 2,000 songs, including ones you haven't heard or even thought about in years because of the way it, it sticks in the memory. But apart from that poetic aspect, other characteristics of medieval English devotion emerge as well. Uh, and they spring, for the most part, from an intense and passionate love for the sacred humanity of Jesus Christ and for his suffering. And from that main principle, there's these other distinctive marks of the old English piety. For example, an intimate familiarity with the Savior. You know, um, I think it was Sherry Waddell in her book, Making Intentional Disciples, uh, where I read that not only do the majority of Catholics not have a personal relationship with Jesus, 
But most of them are not sure that such a personal relationship with God is even possible. And it's understandable that some Catholics would be wary of the question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? Or is your Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? Because it's so associated with Protestant fundamentalism. It's the kind of thing that you would hear on TBN as opposed to EWTN. Even back in 1904, Monsignor Benson said uh, that it's no wonder in our days many sincere persons are uneasy with this idea of an intimate personal relationship with Jesus, for an attitude is wide, uh, such an attitude is now so widely accompanied by an inadequate or heretical view of his person. But whereas in the case of our Catholic forefathers, the grasp upon his divinity is sure and unfaltering, there's no danger that an intimate affection for his humanity will lead souls astray or cause them to treat him with any lack of reverence. However, he also says, on those heights so near heaven, none can tread safely but those who have clear and strong perceptions of dogmatic truth, of that rock that alone can give stability to the pinnacles and spires of prayer. And therefore, Richard Roll can call our Lord his dear and his child the best without danger of undue familiarity, just because he has such a profound sense of him as his maker and his God, which is such an important principle. The foundation of prayer is doctrine. Prayer flows from doctrine, and liturgical prayer especially expresses doctrine. Now, according to Monsignor Benson, the, the medieval English familiarity with the Savior is especially illustrated by the feast or the history of the Feast of the Holy Name. You know, for the loving use of a personal name is the sign of personal intimacy. You call someone by their first name. He says this was an authorized festival in England in the middle of the 1400s under the title of the Most Sweet Name Jesu. It was later sanctioned and indulgenced by Pope Alexander VI at the beginning of the 16th century, <clears throat> but it wasn't accepted into the Roman calendar until the 18th century. Point being that devotion to the Holy Name was a widely popular devotion in England long before it gained hold anywhere else, which is further demonstrated by the writings of Julian of Norwich and, of course, uh, Richard of Hampel. So medieval, medieval English Catholicism was characterized <clears throat> pardon me, by a personal and familiar love of Jesus and also by a great love and reverence for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now, it goes without saying that this is not characteristic of most Protestant devotion, Yet to the old Catholic mystics who recognized that she was and is in literal fact the mother of God, she was their mother too, because they were in God and he in them. But devotional writers who insist so strongly upon the condescending humility of Jesus are at the same time at great pains to emphasize the unique exaltation of Mary. To them she appears as mother of mercy, mother of all wretched and woeful souls, the great and venerable queen. Uh, Monsignor Benson says there was a measure, too, of familiarity we see in Mother Julian's vision of Mary as, quote, a simple maid and a meek, young of age and little waxen above a child in the stature that she was when she conceived. But as a rule, quote, above her is nothing that is made save the blessed manhood of Christ, and she is the well and wit of all wisdom, the comely queen, the fairest that ever God found, of all women the fruit and flower, and the tabernacle of the Trinity. So a personal, familiar love of Jesus and a great love and reverence for the Blessed Virgin Mary, and lastly, a deep love for the details of the Passion. In almost every uh, mystic, the details of the suffering of our Lord form the ground from which acts of love and contrition and ruth spread forth. And you might ask, what is ruth? 
because we no longer use that word except as a proper name. But when you do use the antonym, which is ruthless, which means unfeeling or without mercy. So in medieval times, Ruth meant pity and sorrow and compassion. You know, Monsignor Benson says this devotion distinguishes sharply the true mystic from his modern imitator, who mistakes vagueness for spirituality and idealism for intuition. It is supposed to be a mark of modern delicacy and spiritual instinct to despise and shrink from realism, to dwell upon the risen Christ, the robed and crowned king, or upon the stainless child of Bethlehem, and to avoid the vision of the blood-stained man of sorrow in his torn limbs. But the true mystic reads the awfulness of sin and the awfulness of the cross. The story of his own life, written so carefully and accurately in blood over the white body and soul of his Savior. And he sets the infinite love of God in the infinite sufferings that he so willingly undertook. The full fragrance of the beloved is not perceptible except when he is bruised and torn. And therefore, he says, the medieval souls of prayer loved to follow him with tears and still mourning and love longing, step by step along the way of sorrows, to finger gently each running wound, to plunge their whole hands into his side, and there to feel Christ's heart so hot loving them. Now, this collection of Richard Hampel's prayer, the Book of the Love of Jesus, begins with an introduction to prayer, sort of a, a medieval how-to guide to Catholic meditation. And it's uh, striking how modern it sounds. I mean, apart from the Old English, of course. He said, when thou orderest thyself to pray or to have any devotion, begin by having a privy place away from all manner of noise and at a time of rest without any interruption. Sit there or kneel there as is most to thine ease. Translation, when you pray, go somewhere where you won't be distracted or interrupted and make yourself comfortable. Then, be thou lord or lady, think well that thou hast a God that made thee of naught, which hath given to thee many right senses, thy right limbs, and other worldly ease, more, to, than to some other, more than to some others, as thou mayest see on any day, that live in great disease and much bodily mischief. So, he says, start by thanking God for your blessings beginning with your life and your health, and the fact that no matter who you are, God made you, and whatever your challenge is, you're still better off than many others. Think also, he said, how sinful thou art, and were it not for the keeping of that good God, thou shouldst fall into all manner of sin by thine own wretchedness. And then thou mayest think soothly as of thyself, that there is none so sinful as thou art. Also, if thou have any virtue or grace of good living, Think it cometh of God's sending and not of thyself. So after thanksgiving comes contrition for your sins and recognition that every good thing you have comes from God. And as Bishop Sheen used to say, that any good we do comes from God and we thank him for it. Then think also how long and how often God hath suffered thee in sin. He would not take thee into damnation when thou hadst deserved it, but in his goodness hath borne with thee till thou wouldst leave sin and turn to goodness, for he were loath to forsake what he bought so dear with bitter pains. In other words, God's been merciful to us in that we might have died at any time and faced judgment when we were in the state of sin. A calamity described by the ghost of Hamlet's father, he said, cut off in the flower of my sins, no reckoning made, consigned to fast in flames. Oh, horrible, horrible most horrible. But God has been merciful to us because, as Scripture says, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For you are not bought with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. 
And then he says, also thou mayest think, for that he would not lose thee, he became man, and was born of a maid. In poverty and tribulation all his life he lived, and after, for thy love, he would suffer death to save thee by his mercy. In such manner thou mayest think of his great benefits, and for the more grace to get to thee compunction. Behold with thy ghostly eye his piteous passion. Richard's point is that Christ suffered and died for you personally, that he would have done it even if you were the only one who would have been saved. Thus, in order to feel true contrition for our sins, we should meditate on the passion. In the original manuscript, there followed a, a meditation on the passion, and then it continued. When there cometh devotion, then is the time that thou speak for thine own need and for all others quick and dead that trust to thy prayer. Cast down thy body to the ground and lift up thine heart on high with sorrowful cheer and make thy moan. So it's when you feel contrition and grateful love for Christ, that's the time to pour out your heart to God, to pray for yourself and make intercession for the living and the dead. Then the original followed then a prayer of the passion. And uh, lastly, well, we'll come to that on the other side of the break. Stay with us for No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back, uh, No Nonsense Catholic. Hey, just to finish up with this um, treatise on how to pray with a medieval mentality, uh, Richard of Hampole, Richard Roll, sums up by saying, In such manner thou mayest pray in the beginning, and when thou art well entered into devotion, thou shalt peradventure have better feeling in prayers and in holy meditations otherwise than I can say or show. Good brother or sister, pray for me, which by the teaching of Almighty God have written to thee these few words for the helping of thy soul. So what he's saying is that from this beginning, that you can reach even greater spiritual heights than he has reached or can even describe. And then he asks his readers to pray for him. So this, this program of prayer is every bit as relevant today as it was in the 14th century. And precisely because it's oriented to God, who is unchanging. In the words of St. John Paul II, it's not a matter of inventing a new program. The program already exists. It is found in the gospel and in tradition. It is the same as ever. Ultimately, it has as its center Christ himself, who is to be known, loved, and imitated, so that in him we may live the life of the Trinity. This is a program that does not change with the shifts of time and cultures. This program for all times is our program for the third millennium. And that's no nonsense. Now, this past Sunday, <clears throat> we celebrated the third Sunday of Lent in the extraordinary form it is called Oculi. All the Sundays of Lent and Easter are called after the first word of the introit. And the introit of this day's Mass uh, is the prayer of a soul anxious to be freed from the snares of sin and begins with the Latin word oculi, which means eyes. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he shall pluck my feet out of the snare. Look thou upon me and have mercy upon me, for I am alone and poor. To thee, O Lord, have I lifted up my soul. In thee, O God, I put my trust. Let me not be ashamed. Now, the epistle for the third Sunday of Lent is from Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 9. Brethren, be ye therefore followers of God as most dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, 
and hath delivered himself for us, an oblation and a sacrifice to God for an odor of sweetness. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not so much as be named among you as becometh saints, or obscenity, or foolish talking, or scurrility, which is to no purpose, but rather giving of thanks. For know ye this, and understand that no fornicator, nor unclean, nor covetous person, which is a serving of idols, hath inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the anger of God upon the children of unbelief. Be ye not therefore partakers with them, for ye were heretofore uh, of darkness, but now light in the Lord. Walk ye as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness and justice and truth. So St. Paul here declares it to be the duty of every Christian not only to walk in love, but also to absolutely avoid fornication, impurity, and foolish, false, or immodest talk. <clears throat> now these are, of course, these sins are so commonplace in our culture and so prevalent in our media, including, if not especially, social media, as to hardly be considered sins at all anymore by, by many who live worldly lives. However, St. Paul makes it clear that for those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, it must not be so. Because, he says, no one who is addicted to these vices can have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. So this Lent, our prayer should be to ask our Lord to free our hearts from all inordinate desires for worldly goods or sensual pleasures, and, I have to say for me especially, to ask for a childlike fear of God to guard my tongue, that I may not speak foolish or sinful words. And in the Gospel for the third Sunday of Lent, Luke eleven fourteen through 28. At that time, Jesus was casting out a devil, and the same was dumb. And when he had cast out the devil, the dumb spoke, and the multitudes were in admiration at it. But some of them said, He casteth out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And others, tempting, asked of him a sign from heaven. But he, seeing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself shall be brought to desolation, and house upon house shall fall. And if Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that through Beelzebub I cast out devils. Now if I cast out devils by Beelzebub, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I by the finger of God cast out devils, doubtless the kingdom of God is come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his court, those things are in peace which he possesseth. But if a stronger than he come upon him and overcome him, he will take away all his armor wherein he trusted, and will distribute his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through places without water seeking rest, and not finding, he saith, I will return into my house whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then he goeth and taketh with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and entering in they dwell there. And the last state of that man becometh worse than the first. And it came to pass, as he spoke these things, a certain woman from the crowd, lifting up her voice, said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore thee, and the paps that gave thee suck. But he said, Yea, rather. Blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it.
Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, we'll begin at the end with a much misunderstood verse. When the woman praises Jesus' mother for bearing and nursing him, he responds, Yea, rather, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, some folks would impiously suggest that this is a rebuke of the woman. Uh, in a 1999 made-for-TV movie, I think it was just called Jesus, uh, it portrayed the Blessed Virgin Mary beaming with pride at the woman's praise, only be, to be uh, chastened and shamefaced at Christ's response. It was infuriating, especially because this is not a matter of ambiguity or, or not understanding ancient languages. It's about plain English. The point is the enemies of the faith interpret the word rather as meaning on the contrary, which it does not mean. In modern usage, the primary meaning of rather is to indicate preference. I'd rather have coffee than tea. And that's the cause of the mischief. The secondary meaning is rather uh, of rather is emphasis. She's acting rather strangely. It's a rather hot day. Now, either of these meanings are perfectly in line with the idea that Christ is agreeing with the woman, not contradicting her. He's showing his preference for, for Our Lady's spirituality. Uh, to her, uh, you know, her, the fact that she bore or nursed him, um, or, you know, simply saying, yes, absolutely, right? Uh, uh, using the, the word rather as uh, um, emphasis. You know, after all, the first word he says is yes. <laughs> yes, rather. Virtually every old Bible history calls this episode Mary declared blessed. And we need to remember that the King James Version and the Dewey Reams use the word rather in the original 16th century meaning, which is to express emphatic affirmation. Right? It's like an old British drawing room comedy. Oh, Cecil, aren't you happy to be home? Oh, rather. Right? Now, is all this really legitimate, you ask? Well, my tiebreaker is always the Latin Vulgate. St. Jerome was a Latin scholar whose native language was biblical Greek. So surely his translations can be trusted as it was for so many centuries. Uh, it is, after all, the only translation of the scriptures ever to be declared without error by the church. Now, the word, uh, the Latin word translated rather is kinimo, quinimo, right? Which, according to my Latin dictionary, means truly, in fact, indeed. So a good modern translation would be, yes, indeed. Blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. And as for the rest of the verse, it's a slam dunk. Mary is the exemplar par excellence of hearing the word of God and keeping it be it done unto me according to thy word. And she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And lest we forget, Mary is inspired by the Holy Ghost when she prophesied all generations will call me blessed. And this episode is just the first example. And there's an end to it. Okay, uh, to, the, to the rest of the gospel, Christ cast out the devil by his divine power. And it worked so suddenly and so perfectly that the man who was possessed by the mute spirit was at once uh, freed from his possession and, and able to speak. Now, the Jews accused Christ of being in league with the evil spirits and that he cast out devils by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Now, he showed them this wasn't the case by the parable in which he explains to them that the kingdom of Satan can't stand if one evil spirit can be cast out by another. And his whole ministry, which consisted of works which were in direct opposition uh, to the devil, was, was uh, further proof. And finally, he specifically points to their own children, quote-unquote, some of whom were enabled to cast out devils by the power uh, they'd received from God. Now consider the Jewish exorcist in Mark 9.38, where St. John says to Jesus, 
Teacher, we observed someone expelling demons in your name, and we forbade him because he was not one of us. And Jesus said not to forbid him, for no one who performs a miracle in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. In other words, as he says in another place, he who is not against me is for me. Or consider the Jewish exorcists of Acts 19.13, who also cast out demons in the name of Jesus. Point is that not only were Jewish exorcists expelling demons with the power of God, but actually in the name of Jesus. And speaking of casting out demons, uh, Lent is traditionally a time to go to the sacrament of penance and confess your sins. Uh, and because of the obligation to receive communion during the Easter time, with the understanding that to receive communion, you must be in the state of grace. Well, the church traditionally understood the significance of the dumb devil who so controlled that possessed man that he was unable to speak <clears throat> as representing the false shame that keeps sinners away from confession. Right, that human respect that you don't want to go and accuse yourself. So on the third Sunday of Lent, the church just gives us this gospel of Jesus overcoming the dumb devil uh, to encourage us to have um, the resolve to overcome false shame and confess all our sins sincerely and humbly. Jesus is our leader in the battle against the enemies of the soul, and especially our own evil inclinations, idleness, concupiscence, bad company, bad books or media, human respect. He is the one who can grant us the strength to have a firm purpose of amendment and not relapse into sin, but rather to serve him with perseverance. And that's no nonsense. All right, uh, we'll be back with more right after this on No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. You know, in my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, I discuss at length how the post-Vatican II liturgy really changed the focus of the Mass from God to the assembly, and how the modern liturgy today tends to be overly anthropocentric, that is to say, man-centered, uh, focused on the human rather than the divine. It doesn't have to be so, but you know, in my experience, it is. Now, the general instruction of the Roman Missal tells us that Christ is present in the Mass in several ways. He's present in the priest who offers the sacrifice in persona Christi. He's, offer, he's uh, um, a present in the Word when it's proclaimed. He's present in the congregation when we pray or sing, and most especially, he's present in the Blessed Sacrament. Now, of all these elements, only one is not strictly necessary. You have to have the Word and the priest and the sacrament, but you don't need the congregation. And I, I think the COVID lockdown really brought this home to me because I can recall sitting at home watching my priest live stream the mass, not even in the church, but just the little chapel in the rectory and all by himself, not even an altar boy. See, the worship of God continued without the assembly because the point of worship is God, not the congregation. You know, even our architecture speaks to this. You know, the, traditionally you have this Gothic architecture, you know, the Gothic cathedral with the, with the great vaulted ceilings, uh, and everything uh, is meant to draw the eyes upward because the point of prayer is lifting the mind and heart to God. But churches of the second half of the 20th century, uh, many have been built on a circular or a fan shape, right? So there's not a bad seat in the house. The, the tabernacle is taken away from the sanctuary and put off to the side, or it's removed altogether. Altars have been traded for tables, often even without the prescribed candles or crucifix. 
And of course, it's become unthinkable in the modern church for the priest to have his back to the people. Seeing and interacting with each other has become the goal. It seems like, you know, God's invited, but his role is more about affirming us and, and assuring us that he, golly, he sure is pleased with us. You know, at least if you go according to the songs that they sing at the Novus Ordo. But the, the, the Mass remains fundamentally an act of worship directed to God the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. The priest in the person of Christ is the head of the body and high priest. And we, the members of his body, all turn together to the Father at the canon, the Eucharistic prayer, which is the high point of the Mass. And the head and the members together worship the Father. I mean, that's what happens at the traditional Mass or even in a Novus Ordo Mass that is celebrated ad orientum, which in fact is supposed to be the norm, according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal. See, that's why having the priest facing the people during the Eucharistic prayer is really misleading, because all too often the impression is that the prayer is being read to the people. You know, because not only is the priest facing them, but very often priests, by their tone of voice or eye contact, giving the impression that they are talking to the people. The Novus Ordo even refers to the consecration as the institution narrative, as if the priest was just telling the story of the Last Supper. Now, heaven forbid if the priest was to lower his voice so Mrs. Jones in the back pew couldn't hear, or, or that he prayed the canon in Latin so that Mrs. Jones can't understand. Now, naturally, all that's really beside the point when you remember that prayer is being directed to God the Father, who both hears everything and understands Latin just fine. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that uh, much symbolism is lost in the new mass, so much that it would take hours to relate. But, you know, the Orate Fratres is a great example because it symbolizes the priest going into the Holy of Holies, right? Uh, that, that's why the, the consecration used to be said in a low voice because it was meant to, to symbolize how the priest is now entering the presence of God. But before he does that, he turns to the people and he begs them, pray, brethren, that my sacrifice, which is also yours, may be acceptable to, the, to God, the Almighty Father. That is a time for us. I mean, we should really pray that prayer. If you're at the Novus Ordo and you're, and you're reciting the prayers, may the Lord accept his sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name for our good and, and all his holy church. You should put your heart into that prayer. Because we remember it symbolizes the fact that when the, the priest and the old covenant would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, there was a, a danger that the sacrifice wouldn't be accepted, that he might come out. Right? This is this is the, the absolute high point of the Mass, and we we should be paying attention. You know, the consecration was always done inaudibly, uh, also because it's between the priest acting in the person of the one mediator between God and man, acting in the person of Christ. Just like when the high priest of Israel would ask the people to pray that his sacrifice acceptable before the Holy of Holies, where he would go to make offering for their sins and where he could not be seen or heard by the people. Uh, but what about the liturgy of the word? Surely, I mean, that's rightly directed to the people. And I would say yes. Um, and, you know, uh, even Benedict XVI, when he issued some more in Pontificum, allowed that the... Uh, Scripture readings and the proper prayers could be said in the vernacular because they are directed to the people. But the point is that that aspect of the liturgy is still marked with worship. It's not just readings and instructions. You know, they're singing the psalm, the gradual, the alleluia. Uh, these are responses to what's been proclaimed in the readings. And after the homily, the creed is a participation in the worship of, of prayer. It's more than a statement of faith. 
acknowledging all of the great truths contained in it is a prayer of praise to the Holy Trinity. So yes, amen, the church is more than a Bible study, it's more than a lecture. But the fact is that many churches today, uh, Protestant churches certainly, you know, the mega churches they call, or even Catholic churches, um, you know, have become more like entertainment centers. You know, worship is all about being impressed by the venue or, or you know, the music or, or what's on the, the jumbo screens, you know. I think most Catholic churches try and keep their use of screens uh, very kind of minimalistic so as not to be accused of, you know, making it into entertainment. But a lot of the evangelical mega churches, you know, uh, have no such scruples. And But they report, though, that even though lots of people come, you know, I mean, 20,000 people all come to the Lakewood Church on Sunday or whatever, but they often don't stay, right? And, and the fact is, there's really only so much you can do a church, uh, in a church, surrounded by entertainment culture. Because frankly, as I've said before, Hollywood does entertainment better than your church ever will. <laughs> and that's especially true of youth ministries. You can't compete, and, and they shouldn't be, because entertainment and, and, and worship are two different things. And, and the thing is that people who are indulged in this way get bored. I mean, it's, it's, they eventually get bored. That's why in the Catholic Church here, you know, just a stone's throw from here in Anaheim, they have a liturgy conference every year. Right? They have to keep changing things, not only because they need to justify their continued existence, but, you know, as someone once said famously, there's no there there. So they, they keep changing the trappings to, to try and keep from people from getting bored, you know. But the central point of the liturgy isn't to impress or entertain the congregation. It's to worship God. So let me ask you, does God need a changing liturgy? Does he need new forms of worship? Does he get bored with the older hymns or Gregorian chant or, or with the, the Mass in Latin? No. All of that stuff is about us and not about God. And this problem isn't new even in the Catholic Church. I mean, uh, consider Mozart's Mass in C minor or his Requiem. These are amazing pieces of orchestral and choral music. They're beautiful. I've listened to them often and will continue to. But they're more suited to a concert than to the liturgy more suited to entertainment than worship. See, the music at many Novus Ordo liturgies is <laughs> more suited to a campfire sing-along than, than to the worship of God. And that is why virtually the only area in the Catholic Church where there's growth, whether it's religious orders, seminaries, or at the parish level, the one thing they have in common is either the traditional mass or a more traditional approach to catechesis and especially liturgical practice. And that's no nonsense. That, my friends, is where the future lies. All right. Oh, my goodness. We've uh, burned through another hour of uh, no-nonsense Catholicism here. We have a, a few minutes left, and I'd like to take that time to uh, mention a couple of things. We have a men's conference coming up later in the year. Uh, we have an, an annual men's conference that we have right here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. And this year, there's going to be a uh, kind of a, a special, uh, it's going to be a special event because Jesse Romero typically comes out from Arizona to speak at the men's conference every year. But this year, he's going to be joined by his brother, Johnny. Jesse and Johnny Romero together again, uh, and with their own special brand of what we call power preaching. And you know what? It's, <laughs> it's really... Uh, 
It's something to behold. I remember many years ago, many, many years ago, uh, Jesse and Johnny used to give talks at the Catholic Resource Center bookstore in Covina. And uh, and they would they would draw a big crowd and they had a very devoted following. And the two of them, they're just a, they are a tag team. And, uh, you know, that's it's made in heaven. So I, I very much encourage you, gentlemen, uh, you want to bolster your faith. You want to learn something about your faith. You want to come home, be a better father, better husband, better Catholic that I you should go to the. Virgin Most Powerful Radio Annual Men's Conference. Now, you can find out all about that by visiting our website, vmpr.org. It's right on the homepage, and you can register now. And even though it's some months away, I would recommend that you do register now because it's a a fairly small venue. There's only a couple of hundred seats, and it does sell out. And, uh, you know, as people found out the hard way when I was talking about the Spiritual Warfare Conference coming up later this month, even though that's at a larger venue, St. Joseph's in Pomona, it did sell out. And and it just, people are always like, wait, wait, I want to go. It's like, well, you know, you you have to strike while the iron is hot, as they say. So do visit vmpr.org to register for the men's conference. Also, you can register for a live stream of the Spiritual Warfare Conference. If you are <clears throat> didn't have uh, the opportunity to register as uh, for the live, uh, you know, to be able to to go live, you may experience it live via uh, a live stream. So, but that, that's, again, that's something you need to register for. So go to vmpr.org and you can register for either one of those conferences. You can also uh, look on the website, find out about all the stuff that we're doing here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Most especially, you can click on the uh, tab that says Our Shows and see all the different programs. I know that our, our flagship program is the Terry and Jesse Show. And... Uh, Jesus 911, extremely popular. But we have uh, a number of good shows. Of course, Bishop Strickland Hour, The Never-Ending Struggle with uh, Charles Coulomb, uh, the wonderful Catholic historian and raconteur. It's very much worth your time listening. Uh, Dr. Louis Sandoval Show, where uh, Dr. Louis Sandoval is um, he's a medical doctor. He's a psychiatrist in family practice. He is a part of the exorcism ministry in the Diocese of Orange, who's very much involved in spiritual warfare. His, uh, his show is absolutely worth your time to, to listen to. So please go there, check it out. All of these shows are archived. You can see it um, via video on Rumble, or especially I encourage you to go to vmpr.org and download our free smartphone app so that you will always have direct access to all of the shows and all of the great content that's uh, loaded up on that app. Lots of prayers and video and lots of stuff for you to check out. All right. Uh, In the meantime, I want to say thanks so much for being with us this week. We'll do it all again next week. In the meantime, may God richly bless you and your family.